What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? This is Muscle, and this is another Two Line Music Huts Entertainment Report podcast. And today we have a really special guest in the building. Listen, when it comes to sound clash right across the globe, this man, you always hear his name and his company. When it comes to the sound conversation, you always hear them talking about it on the radio station. You know, we have in the building today, we have Chin from Irish and Chin in the building today. What's going on, Big Boss? What's back, I'm Thank you so much for coming to the Entertainment Report podcast today. Yeah, man, give thanks. Thanks for having me. All right. On this podcast, we like to go right from the beginning and then bring it right up to 2022. So my first question for you is this. Where did you grow up in New York and what type of child were you? I grew up in New York, man. Just an average American kid um, doing what American kids in New York do. I started off in Brooklyn and then um, probably at maybe 10 or something, I made it to Queens and I've been a Queens kid ever since. What was Queens like growing up back in those times there? Um, back in the time, the Queens would be more like, like moving on up, you know, um, in, 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 in New York, it was, uh, you know, Brooklyn and a lot of parts of the Bronx were kind of like the rough areas. Right. So, when um, Jamaican people are, are, should I say, um, Caribbean people came to the States, um, especially those who resided in New York, the fact that they could move to Queens, it, it improved the quality of life. There were better schools at the time. Um, you know, the kids were safe outside playing. You had your driveway, you have your front yard, you have your backyard. So it was just a different quality of life during those times. I think every Caribbean family would have rather to, to move to Queens if they could afford it to give that quality of life to their children growing up. Mm -hmm. And what was the music like at home at that time there? We was listening to hip hop like every other kid growing up, West Indian kids. It was hip hop, you know, for us parents, them listening to the oldest, what good is um, the songs that we didn't want to hear at that time that now, we realize all the big songs in our culture, you know? So, um, you know, those of us who really um, became selectors and sound owners and DJs within maybe the 90s, early 90s, um, we were tortured throughout the 80s with music that we really didn't want to hear, especially those of us who were born in the States because our parents lived in a musical time zone that we did not want to be part of at the time. But as you grew into the music, you kind of found yourself saying, oh, I know that song. And you realize that the reason why you know the song is because it was a part of your upbringing, you know? So um, parents, um, my dad was a music man. My mom was uh, someone who appreciated music, not so much into the music, but she appreciated hearing the music. My dad was the, the man that was, you know, um, buying records and, you know, playing these records in the home. And that would have been really one of my early influences to, 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 to sound system culture, because, you know, at that age, we used to steal all the amps and steal all the equalizers and those things um, to have our own parties. So this is would be before we understood what professional equipment was, you know what I mean? Um, this is before we realized that, you know, the home component set and actual real professional equipment was different. So in the early days, um, 
and we were just developing like King Agony. Um, we were in high school. This is what we were doing. We were basically taking our parents' stuff, stealing it out the house, for, for lack of a better word, and, um, you know, having parties amongst ourselves with our peers and, you know, enjoying ourselves that way. Was King Agony your first foray into entertainment? Um, yeah, King Agony would have been, you know, our first, um, how would I, how would I answer that question? Agony was, as a youth, it was the first thing that we were in charge of, something that we owned for ourselves, something that we can say, um, this is our hustle. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, probably agony probably started when we were probably in 10th grade, not 10th grade probably. And, um, you know, it was just what we did, you know, West Indian kids, um, mimic what's happening around them. And during that time, most of the, the older street people, you know what I mean? Um, they were all building sound systems, you know what I mean? And, um, them building those sound systems and you becoming a fan of those sound systems, that energy alone wants you to be able to create your own thing too. You know what I mean? And, um, you know, it, it, it has to be understood that during those times, we were too young to go to certain parties. Our peers were too young to go to certain parties. So we basically looked at what was happening in the older crowds and we decided that we were going to create that for our peers, right? Because our peers was also listening to dance hall and all of that great stuff as well. So um, um, we just created agony, you know, and, and, and that was something that we could say we owned and we was in charge of, and that would have been our first introductory to, to high level music, you know? And even before we go down this King Agony route right here, what sounds were you listening to first from Jamaica that really impressed you? Say, you know what? I want to build a song and I want to be part of what I'm hearing. Um, I'm influenced by a whole lot of sounds, to be, believe it or not. You know, um, you know, as I said, as a kid, I was going to Jamaica um, a lot. You know, I, I spent my Easter's, I spent my summers, I spent my Christmases in Jamaica at one point. So it was just like, back and forth, back and forth, because the music was so, uh, so gravitated, right? Um, I was mentored by uh, someone who played a huge role in the upbringing of, of, of my cultural experience as far as music is concerned, um, Disco Birch. So he was, uh, he was a selector on Stone at one time. That was exactly, you know, his title. He was responsible for the, the disco. Um, we lived downtown and in the in the um in the tenement yard that my family lived in, he lived two doors down. Mm. Right. So we spent a lot of time together. Um and within that time, I was able to understand an aspect of the music that I didn't understand, which was dub plates and um and uh, and funky music and stuff like that. Because remember, I, I grew up in New York. So growing up in New York, I would you know, um, go to some of the hardcore dances and some of those hardcore dances would be um, the Fergals, the Addies, the this, the that, you know what I mean? Um, but a lot of that type of, the real culture of the music was in Jamaica and I needed to understand that. So growing up in the States, 
you you thought that you had a real understanding of, of what was going on in the dance hall space, but going back home to Jamaica, you just you got you quickly understood that um, what was happening in America was just a fraction of the real vibe. You know what I mean? And the real vibe had different stages, and you know, foreign kind of only adopted to one stage, which is the hardcore dance hall, bam, 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 bam. You know what I mean? Um, the only sound system that was giving us the true authentic vibe in my experience here in New York was Afrique because they were doing it just like Jamaica, right? So saying all of that to say, um, we were playing Agony and we were playing for the school kids and we were, you know, having our house parties and stuff like that. But, you know, the next level would be the dub plate recordings, right? And, you know, for us, the first thing that we did was we started to uh, buy some of the local New York artists in Brooklyn that used to hang around the studios and stuff because, you know, at that point, we still didn't understand the dub culture, but we wanted, we couldn't, we didn't understand and we couldn't afford. So that's two things, right? So we wanted to still have these dubs. So when we played for our, our fan base, which was our peers, at least they would hear King Agony's being played in some of the music that they're, they're partying to, right? So we started off with these local dub plates and, you know, voicing, you know, some, some of the artists that kind of was hot at that time, right? Upcoming artists. Um, after now going to Jamaica and realizing that in order for us to get where we want to get, it can't be just the local artists in New York, but we really had to, to you know, to have the, the, real, the real authentic stuff. Um, as I was saying, Disco Birch introduced me to that. So... You know, me going to Arrows for the first time and going to um, Jammings and studios like that would have been basically him holding my hand and saying, yo, come on, let's do this. And then a lot of the early dubs that I was able to get for, for Agony, because remember, you know, we wanted to get the Bushy Bantons and the Cabras and those songs because that's what our crew was listening to, our fans were listening to. But um, he was the ones who he was the one who got me to voice like the Delroy Wilsons and the the, the um the big youths and some of those real songs that I personally didn't know what the value was at the time, but because he forced me to do it, we did it. You know what I mean? Because it was what it was. Um, later on, I began to understand. I I started to understand how valuable having those type of dubs were. You know what I mean? So. Yeah, I mean, that was my mentorship. It, it, it took years for me to really understand. I would go down, downtown and, you know, buy my records, the rear records then. And then I would go to um, Aquarius Record Shop in Half a Tree um, and get whatever else I needed under, you know, Virgil's uh, supervision. There was also a Virgil that used to help me out with Virgil too called Raka Bessa. He was also a member of Stone Love, right? Um, um, so those were like early, early influences. Um, uh, there was, before there was Lita at Arrows, who became a really good friend of mine, there was Shelter Rock, right? And Shelter Rock is an older guy that, you know, helped me to collect a lot of that, though the vintage artists and told me who was who and, you know, we made it work that way. So yeah, I, I've, you know, long story short, I've been doing this for a minute, you know? For a minute. Okay, originally, who was in King Agony, and why did you guys decide to name it King Agony? Um, that's a good question. Uh, uh, 
I, I well, the good question is why we decided to name it King Anthony. I don't think I remember why we did that, but um, it was uh, my childhood best friend, Stephen. A lot of you guys call him Indian. And then later on, another one of our brethren's came on, um, Bigger. So it's basically three of us who, um, who owned the sound at the time. The time the sound started off with myself as um, selector and MC, and then um, Junior Blacks um, um, is was the um, was the selector. Mm -hmm. uh, or should I say mixer, right? And then we had another brethren named Sean that was the selector because really. The selector is the person who takes the dubs out of the box and gives it to the, 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 the mixer to mix. And that, that's really what the culture really is supposed to be. But we call everybody selectors, right? So it was a 319, um, myself, Junior Blacks, and, and, and Sean. And um, that's pretty much how we started, you know? Um, uh, I think we, I don't know how we came up with King Agony, but... Um, it is a myth, though, that we stole the name from another sound in Brooklyn. That that really wasn't wasn't the case at all. We it's just I guess um, uh, 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 great minds think alike, and we really you know had our own scene in Queens, so we really didn't know what was going on in Brooklyn. We really didn't care what was going on in Brooklyn because we know that we weren't at the level to be accepted in Brooklyn. You know, so we knew that there was an LP and a Soul Supreme and these sounds, but we didn't really care because it wasn't appealing to, to the level that we were on. You know, we had our little sound system circuit here in, in Queens with, you know, Pretty Posse and Mega Tempa and all of these sound systems that, you know, um, that, you know, and forgive me for those of that I don't remember, but that was our little circuit. So we came out with King Agony and our first dance, our first really big dance, if I can remember correctly, was supposed to be with Papa San, right? Papa San performing live on King Agony. And I don't remember what happened, but San didn't show up, right? Um, I, I don't remember what the, what the politics were, but we, we didn't. The, the dance ended up well. I think it was Agony and a sound system named Galaxy. Those who are from New York will understand, especially Queens. Um, so Pampa San didn't come, but the dance was promoted so widely that people in Brooklyn started to realize that there's a King Agony in Queens. And that caused a little rift because at the time there was also an Agony in Brooklyn. And... I'm being honest with you, like, we didn't know because we just didn't know. It was just not our thing to know, right? So we got some phone calls from those guys, and at first it was kind of a little, you know what I mean, saying that we stole their name and stuff because I think they were just agony, and then we called ourselves King Agony, so you can see where it pissed somebody off, right? Um, but after a while, it kind of melted away, and, you know, we, we went on to just do great things, you know? Um, Agony also consists, that was the early crew. Later on, um, 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 Killer Boo came on, um, who now plays Addis. And it's funny because I say this sometimes and I don't even know if Bo remembers. Like, um, I was playing Agony for a good, you know, good while. Most of the real clashes was in my era, you know, because at that time, we just wanted to be a sound clash sound. We wasn't thinking about no uban and a juggling, a re, re, re. We just wanted to clash, you know? So 
we were doing all of these clashes, you know, with, with most of the majors. So um, whether it was Inner City, um, we did the Silver Hawk, we did um, Metro Media, we did Jam Rock, um, we did quite a few. We did Fergal Digital, we did Bodyguard. We're clashing with everybody, right? Um, this was, you know, because this was our ambition, right? To, to become, you know, some type of great sound clashing kids, right? Um, but in those days, the pace was slower. So I could play a song. I could talk after every song. There was no juggling in those days, really, right? You know, Killing Machines just played big dubs and talked a lot of talk, you know? Um, I was able to identify that my style of playing was being outdated because the dance all started to move faster and I couldn't keep up. Like I didn't have the speech. I wasn't that type of person, right? So I identified Killer Boo as somebody who could be that type of person because at that time he was working at the record shop or hanging out at the record shop and he was just a liked person. Everybody liked him. He was funny always making jokes, always teasing people. And um, we, we kind of suffered from that whole um, not too likable type of people, you know, at the time, because we were, we were young kids, you know, we had a, a state-of-the-art sound system. Um, you know, we didn't really mix with people because we didn't have to. We had everything that we wanted. We had all of the duck plates and, you know, we were really cocky because we were killing sound systems and we were beating them up and, you know, stuff of that nature. So we weren't the most liked crew, you know, in, in, in our little circle, you know. Um, so getting Bo to come on, you know, kind of in my mind helped us to become accepted into the audiences that we needed to be accepted on. And um, also the talent that he had, we just didn't have it, you know? So um, Killer Boo, I, I, I think it took me like three times. He, he turned me down a lot. You know, he just didn't want to do it. I don't know what his reasons were. He probably doesn't remember what his reasons were. But eventually he decided that he would play, you know? And um, that, him coming on board pushed me back, which was my intention. And took him, he was able to take the sound out to a different level. So I went back to cutting dub plates and the stuff that I enjoyed. And he was able to bring the sound to uh, another level. Um, later on, we go to a party. Um, we're booked for a party. I'll never forget it because the um, the uh, head-to-toe rhythm just came out. And Agony had a wicked juggling on the head-to-toe. And... Um, we, we went to a party and then there was a sound system early warming for us to play. And the sound system was playing, Selector was just beating songs and you know doing really, really good. And it was an upstairs place. And I went upstairs to see who was playing and that's how I met Ninja. So he, you know, he, was, he was playing a sound system from Far Rockaway, which was a little sound system and um, the sound system was early warming for agony. So after I saw how well he was handling himself, I asked him right there, like, yo, you want to play agony? And he was like, yeah. He left this sound that same night. And by the next night, um, he was he, he was he was at you know at our at our HQ helping us to get ready because we were gonna go clash Irish's sound. 
And um, that's how it went. It was, it was as simple as that. So, you know, and, and it's good to see that Ninja ends up on Mighty Crown, you know, um, Killer Boo ends up, you know, on Addies, and I end up being who I am, you know, so it's really good. All right. You brought up some big heavy names that King Agony got into some fights with, some clashes with. Because when was Agony built? In the 80s or the early 90s? We Early 90s. We were still in high school. We got out of high school about maybe 93, 92, 93. Um, so I would say we probably started from about 90. Mm-hmm. That would be accurate. We probably started from about 90. Um, and yeah. Tell me two clashes that you'll never forget on agony either you won or you're dead two of them that you'll never forget um black cat and base odyssey um black cat i would never forget because that was my you know that was my um that was my moment you know that that was my moment um it was about 19 1993 um this time we 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 run queens when it comes to doubling artillery and hard juggling, you know. Um, and Posse also runs queens because they were like the stone love. So it was like a stone love and Kilimanjaro situation. The road boy them come away and the girl them got Posse. You know what I mean? Um, so a promoter from Panthers area um, decides that he. Well, I don't know how it went, but this this guy showed up and he wanted to keep a clash um, with Black Cat in agony. And um, the price that he we, we we wanted to charge him, he just felt that we weren't worthy of that that payment at the time. And we're like, all right, cool, we just won't do it. Now, mind you, at the time, I don't know nothing about Black Cat. I'm not following Black Cat like that, right? But um, I have a brethren who was a countryman from St. Elizabeth where he was a Black Cat fanatic. Anyway, we turned down the dance. The brethren put out the clash with uh, Black Cat and Pretty Posse. And it wasn't, the community wasn't, you know, they weren't grabbing it the way that he thought that it, it would grab because, you know, Posse's a, is a girl song, you know what I mean? Um, so he came back now and he added us to the sounds, to the clash, which of course means now we had to pay more than the original price. Um, but we took the clash. Um, when I took the clash, my, my brethren came to me and was like, yo, this is the first time Menard cheerful, no. And yeah, and I got dead, you know, you got dead wicked. So, um, long story short, we did the dub preparation because dub preparation was always my thing. Mm-hmm. We did the dub preparation, and we we found some ways that we felt like if we could we could get this opportunity, we'll be able to to, to really defend ourselves. At this time, nobody not think about kill Panther. You know, we think about defend ourselves. You know, um. Uh, the dance happened, uh, and we we beat it. We beat him badly too. Um, the dance got shot up, of course. And you guys know Panther's character as much as I do. So his excuse is the dance was never finished, you know. And blah 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 blah. But 
we um we got the best of him. In fact, I was the first person in the dance hall space to introduce the Pink Panther theme song in the in in in, in the arena because that's what I used to really kill it. You know what I mean? So we got an intro introduction from Bunny General because Bunny was really killing sounds at that time, real feisty. And we laid the movie track of Pink Panther underneath the um, the vocals of Bunny. And it really, you know, people really reacted to it really well. You know what I mean? Um, and, you know, because his name was Pink Panther. You know what I mean? And he should be doing that, not us, you know? Um, in addition to some other stuff, I remember um, um, playing... I remember also being the first one to play um, Shaba. I love all of the gun there, right? Um, at the time, Shaba wasn't doing any dubs, just not doing dubs because he was, this is the heights of, this is 93, right? And, um, you know, one of, the, one of the selectors on Agony, Sean, right, is blood cousins with Cabra. And Cabra was also being managed by a specialist at the time who was also Shaba's manager. So we would run into Shaba a little bit more than usual because of Cabra, right? And we was always hanging around with Cabra. And um, Cabra got it to work out for us where specialists would hear us out. And in 1993, we paid $1,500 to Shaba for um, Isle of All of the Gun, you know? And it was it was hilarious. It was hilarious because we were talking to Shaba about the, the need that we need this song because we're finally gonna get it our real big shot. And Panta has a whole lot of Shaba songs. And Shaba turns to me and says, you know, what do you mean, Black Cat I'm holy by Shaba song? And I'm like, yeah, blah, 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 and telling him the songs, and he's like, yo, brother. We never ever did no song, no dub for no song named Black Cat, you know? So that even gave us a little bit more, you know, a little bit more zest. So, you know, once the Isle of All of the Gun then dropped first time in a dance hall, um, it was it was one of those times where Shaba was so big that we had to go to Sony Records to voice a dub play. Right? Yeah, so we went to Manhattan, we went to Sony Records to voice the dub, and we had to just take it on whatever rhythm was available because the original rhythm and stuff wasn't there, you know? So we took it on some bullshit rhythm, but it did what it had to do, and we, we end up winning the clash, you know? So that would be one of my first big memories because I won. Um, the second one would be um, with Bass Odyssey, but I lost, you know, um, uh, a, a promoter from Far Rockaway kept a dance with us in a club called Crystals. And it was a juggling dance. And at the time, it was myself. And um, we have a record shop here in Queens named Original Records. And at one time, um, Fata from Original Records was playing Agony with me, right? So it was just me and Fata. And we took this dance with Bass Odyssey. And um, juggling dance, the promoter wanted to bring Bass Odyssey to Queens. Agony is the sound system that had the double artillery to, to, to keep up the pace. So we got the dance. And um, I, I'm home in Jamaica now and, you know, I'm, I'm going to the Stone Love Dances and stuff with Burchell 
And I realized that all of the selectors pack out their dubs on the table, like they pack them out, you know, for, to juggle. So I come home now with that style after, you know, after getting all of these, these dubs um, and I'm packing out my dubs on the table and then Squingy walks in. And then he comes over to me and he's like, yo, which bot sold this with so much dub? You know, so, you know, I'm very proud and saying, yo, agony, bro. And he's like, Chano, all the promoter tell me say I juggling dance. I'm going to even bring no dub. You know what I mean? Chano. But oh, he leaves and, you know, Fato says to me, bro, anyhow you start a clash with these guys, I'm walking off the stage and you're going to have to deal with this your own kadem bot. And I'm like, Whatever you feel me, so um, we start clashing, and um, you know, we get some good jabs in, you know, we really get some good jabs in. But base Odyssey is base Odyssey, you know. The the highlight of the night to me was Squinchy was playing um, um, World of Dance because remember those times we could play 45 and dub plates in, 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 in the dance hall space, right. So he was playing Beanie Man World of Dance. He had some dubs on the rhythm and he was killing me and dancing at the same time. And after I saw that happening, I was like, yo, there's no way for me to catch up. However, though, mm -hmm. um, the highlight of it for me was one for, for a greater part of the dance I was able to keep up. Um, and at the end of the night, um, Squinchy picked up the mic and said, yo, that sound your bad. Me not tell no lie. Them you them you tell me rate, you know. Me I come a foreign and me not really play with that much bad sound yet. Them you them look at you your bad. So for me, everything that I endured for the rest of the whole night was okay because, you know, and, and this was like, Earth Ruler was clashing him the following week. So Earth Ruler was in the dance, um, you know, this is how we used to be back in the days in New York. You know, when, when a sound came to town that you were going to clash or you had aspirations clashing, you would go to the dance and stand up in there, listen to the songs and see how they perform and all of that. So it was cool, man. I think that in, in closing, I would say this. A lot of people don't know what we did as far as song made on Agony because we came from Queens. And Brooklyn and the Bronx was the highlight. That's where the spotlights were. We were young kids at the time. And it was the older guys getting, getting the props for playing sound systems. It wasn't us, you know what I mean? And then where we were located in Queens, geographically in the middle of, you know, people just had Queens as a joke. So it was kind of like, Burr. but when they came to Queens, we roughed them up. Like that. You see, that's why I really wanted to go in depth with Agony a bit, because I've always heard you talk about it in passing, but you never went into it. So I said, okay, let me see where you're really coming from before we even get into what you've been doing. You understand? Yeah, um, Agony was a Agony was a stepping stone for for, for my life. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like um those virgins that you know I was around with around at the time. So it would be Steven and Bigger. And you know, just our little our little crew, because we got we we got so much energy from each other during those times. Those were the good times. Those are the times when um, you know, it's before all of the animosity and whatever else comes into the picture when you just 
youths fighting for the same thing. You know what I mean? It's not even money. It's just trying to be accepted amongst your peers and, and, and make a mark for yourself. You know what I mean? Um, so those were really, really, really good days. But as we know, you know, you know, success and all kind of other things come into play and sometimes good teams end up splitting up, you know? So eventually, um, myself and Indian, you know, we, we, we parted ways and, um, I was asking at one time to get dubs from the sound system and it, it just, I just left it alone. It was, it was, it was cool because by that time of me really hundred percent departing from agony, I was in that transition to mighty crown. Got you. So even you said earlier that you guys had clashed with, um, Irish yourself. What was the name of your song? Irish had a sound system called Supertone, and um, uh, that was the beginning of, that's a whole different understanding, a whole different story. Um, and these are the things we don't really much talk about. So Irish was playing with the big sounds in Long Island because that's where he's from, which is another underrated part of New York, right, as far as dance hall is concerned. So he was clashing with the big sounds over there. I didn't know Irish at that time, though. And, um, you know, agony started to get so big and now we got bowl and we're juggling. And, you know, so we got hardcore locked, we got juggling locked that eventually we started to make it over into his territory. Right. And as his ego would have it, he wasn't comfortable with the fact that local promoters over there were booking agony or outside sound instead of booking his sound. So he called me for a sound clash. And um, in, this, in this debate or this negotiation, I should say, um, you know, I gave him a price. He wasn't worth it. He thought he was the biggest sound. I thought I was the biggest sound. So the conversation actually got nowhere, right? Um, but what ended up happening is that, I don't know if he said it to me or I said it to him, but we decided since both of us love class so much, why don't we just keep a sound clash and don't put either one of our names in, you know, either one of our sounds in the competition, but just keep a sound clash. So we were living identical, uh, identical lifestyles in two different places, right? Young youth, you have your crew, you have your followers, you have play a song, you own your own song system. Um, and it was just the same, same, same type of thing. So we decided to come together and keep our first dance. And our first dance was the birth of Irish and Chin. But we never thought of it, you know, that it was going to make it till, you know, 20, 20, 25 years later. It was just more us doing something because we just wanted to be, you know, we just wanted to be entertained, right? So we did Black Cat and um, Kilimanjaro inside Q Club in, I don't know if that was 96 or 97. Mm-hmm. That's a big one there. And because now you guys went from clashing the songs, you guys own your songs to now promoting the songs. How easy or how hard was it to actually transition from Salman to now promoter? Are you were still playing both roles at this time here? Um, it was hard. It was hard because when we were coming in, there were gatekeepers, right? And the gatekeepers wouldn't let us in, right? So it became really hard to get the bigger sounds. A lot of the sounds that you, you heard me mention, like, you know, to, 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 to play with us or when you became a promoter to help you promote, right? 
So there was a lot of pushback and a lot of sabotage because the people who controlled the sound culture, so to speak, before us, um, weren't letting us come in at all. And it wasn't, you know, now that I'm older and I look back, it wasn't because they didn't like us as a person. Mm-hmm. It just didn't like the threat of a new wave coming in and kind of overshadowing what they had going on. So it was really, really hard. You know, um, you know, when I was selecting Agony, you know, and I was trying to get dates with Stone Up, that was almost like impossible, you know? Um, it, you know, they just made it impossible. And at those times too, sound systems really had a lot of value, right? So because sound systems had a lot of value, they were able to kind of pick and choose what promoters they played for because all the promoter had to do is put the name of a sound on a flyer and the dance round. You know what I mean? It wasn't about who was keeping it, you know? So the powers that be would kind of, in my opinion, make sure that a select amount of people get those sounds because those sounds are bringing in big money. You know what I mean? So we kind of had to fight our way into it. And we fought our way into it by keeping our own dances. So I was keeping my own dances. Or should I say, we, I want to say I, we was keeping our own dances on agony, right? Because we couldn't get booked from the upper echelon people. They weren't, they weren't working with us. Irish was doing the same exact thing keeping his own dance. So this is how we both became, you know, popular in our own right. When we became promoters, it was still a problem because, um, and this is a whole nother conversation. We, we, we came, we came in the industry at a time when Clash was on a pause in New York. And this is what a lot of people don't understand and a lot of people don't want to admit. Mm-hmm. Um, after Biltmore closed, right, in about, I want to say about 96 to 97, within those years, there were slim to no clashes being held in all of New York. The vibe just kind of died down with the whole class C. We actually didn't have a class C, um, if, 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 you know, if we were to be truthful. Um, one of the reasons why our Clash dance with Black Cat and, and, and Jaro worked so well is because everybody was longing to see a clash, right? So we held the clash in Queens at the Q Club, which is popularly known for partying and juggling, and we had to lock people outside, right? Because so many people were, were just gravitating to something that they haven't saw in a long time. Um, so a new promotional team was born and this new promotional team that was born again, remember, I, I started up the conversation telling you that myself and Irish comes from two underrated territories in New York. Mm-hmm. Right? So a lot of the stuff that move the industry at that time was done by rated people, identifiable people, people who had respect for whatever they were doing. Then comes these two kids that really nobody knows in the wider New York, you know what I mean? That's keeping these these events. So it was really hard, bro. Really, really hard. First coming in. So then now, your first dance, did you guys make actually make profit at that dance? You guys made money, break even, you lost money. What was it like financially, your first dance? I think we made money, man. 
I believe that we, we, we actually made money. This was a time when SaaS systems weren't charging real crazy um, amount of money. Also, remember that there was a pause. So Trooper would have been happy to come to New York. You know, Panther would have been happy to come to New York as well. So it was, it was a money-making, it, it made money. But we weren't doing it for money. That's the, that's the issue, you know what I mean? We were doing it because we just wanted to, we, we just had a newfound friendship and we both had an interest. We both had money. So it was like, yo, let's just do this and have some fun. Um, it's not until after that we would realize that we were onto something good. The Addies and Panta dance in Q Club. This is 1998. Was that you guys' second dance? Um, I'm not sure if that was our second dance. That was that was like 97, I think. 98. I have the original flyer right here. I've been collecting flyers from since 19. Yeah, since 1988. So I got them. Warlords. Yes, I know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So even with this now, because now you're bringing in a song from Brooklyn into Queens. What was that like now dealing with Addies and trying to get them over to Queens where, again, you guys aren't really popular yet, but you guys are just reviving back the sound class scene. What was that like? It was difficult um, working with Addies. Um, um, Babyface was controlling it at the time, right? So I, I went down to their HQ and um, the sound system that I wanted them to clash was Cataract. I didn't. I didn't go to them for for, for um for Black Cat. I went to them for Cataract, right? And um after meeting, cause cause I've always been a fan of Face. You know what I mean? Like Face to me, he was. You know, I told you guys that I learned the structure of the business from Birchell, mm -hmm. but Birchell didn't teach me how to be a selector. I learned that from observing Face, watching how he moved, and 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 um selecting songs and my obsession with being able to cut dubs came from the way he cut dubs. You know what I mean? So Disco Birch wasn't a dub cutter. You know what I mean? But, you know, Face was that man that was always inventing and coming with something new. And, you know, I was, my ambition was to be like Face. Even if I was going to be, you know, only the baby face of Queens. You know what I mean? I wanted to operate on that, that level, right? So um, when I went to go um, to link Addis, it would be me, you know, being a businessman, well, not knowing that I was a businessman at the time because we were still young, but also I had that respect for face. You know what I mean? Um, I went to him with a sound system called Cataract because they recently killed Jaro in Jamaica. And um, when we, when I finally got to speak to him, he didn't know who Cataract was. At least he, he told me he didn't know who Cataract was, right? And 100%, he wasn't willing to take no check. Meaning like, yo, met them man, they got to some more things. I made me figure out who them is first before I play them boy, right? So the default clash became um, him and Black Cat. That's kind of how that took place, you know what I mean? Um, it was our first and only dance with Addis. And, and, and as I say, um, it happened that way, not because we didn't rate Addis. I think that Addis didn't rate us. You know what I mean? And when I say Addis didn't rate us, I'm speaking of face. 
You know what I mean? Um, because the, the, the virgins that have it know weren't, weren't in the picture before, right? And Etan wasn't there. So I believe that the reason why we weren't able to do business with Addis is because they just didn't rate us. Like that, because Addis' name is going to come up later in the conversation, but I'm glad how you said it right here. 98 now, this is actually the first year you guys did World Clash? 1998 was the first World Clash, yeah. How did you guys even come up with the idea? Because you know they had the the World Clash in UK already. We had one in Canada already. How did you guys decide this is a brand that we want to go with at this time here now? I mean, I, it was it uh, it was a situation where we just we were keeping a bunch of one on one dances, right? Uh, 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 and this is another thing that people don't talk about. So before we got to multi-sound clashing, we were doing one-on-one -on -one events. You just named one, right? And we were doing others based out of C. David Raddick, and we did quite a few of them. What I started to realize from an early time is that the crowd is limited um, based on the two-sound clashing. So I wanted to get more people in the clash, more patrons, Right. But the celebrities of each sound system during that time, I felt was it was it was going down, meaning that remember, I just said that thing clashing kind of did feel a little bit in our territory. Right. So I did all of these clashes and I don't remember what the number was, like the number of patrons, but I've always been a figures person. Right. So the number of patrons, I wouldn't be able to pass whatever mark, no matter what clash it was. It was stuck at a mark, right? And it's like challenging myself now to pass that mark. Allow me to believe that, well, if we use more sound systems, then we have more celebrities in one place. And then therefore we can, you know, get this thing going, you know, get a possibility of passing the number. Um, so in 1998, we decided to do a world clash and, and I don't even know, to be honest with you, I don't want to say that I thought of it on my own because I might have didn't. There was a bunch of people around us at the time. And it could have possibly been influenced by the ones that happened further, you know, before us. You know what I mean? Um, at the time, it was uh, myself and Seathug, um, you know, Drew Williams, um, Scrappy, um, you know, uh, uh, and then Drew H.I.M. was also part of the circle because that was the circle, you know. Um, and I believe that we we just did it. You know, we did it. And and, and again, I want to make that I want to make it clear. I'm not saying that it wasn't inspired by for me directly. It wasn't inspired by because I wasn't really a fan of the world clash that was held in, in the U.K. However, the persons who were sitting at the table with me might have been inspired by um, that that series of events, and we just decided to go world clash, and that that's what it was. You know what I mean? It was just something that we wanted to do. And this one here is where you guys decided to go more hardcore because I think the first one was Jaro, Coxin, and Downbeat. Yeah, I did Jaro, Coxin, and Downbeat because we wanted to do we wanted to be foundation, and even with that, you know what I mean. Um, that wasn't the first dance as well. The first lineup was Saxon, right? So I linked Saxon, um, and, and I'll never forget this because I was in I was in I was in college at the time, and um, I was in 
I was on campus and I got a call. I spoke to Musclehead. And um, yeah, I believe it was Musclehead. Forgive me if I'm calling the wrong name. And I was telling them about this, this ambition that I have to keep world class in the States and blah, 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 blah. And then um, he told me 20,000 pounds, right? It would cost me to get Saxon. Now, call me stupid, but I didn't know how much 20,000 pounds was, right? So I continued to entertain the conversation with another phone call because I really wanted to get Saxon, right? I wanted it to be Jaro Saxon downbeat. And I called back and I said to him that, okay, well, we're considering to pay the 20,000 pounds. Again, not knowing how much 20,000 pounds really is, right? Um, we're considering to pay the 20,000 pounds. And then after I told them that I was considering to pay the 25,000 pounds, the 20,000 pounds, sorry, 20,000 pounds, before I could even finish expressing the thought, then the person on the next end of the phone said, but we have to play upon our own song. So in other words, I would have to fly their physical sound from the UK to Amazur. In other words, we don't want to do it, right? And you know what? Let me not say I was speaking to Musclehead because I'm not sure who I was speaking to, but I was speaking to someone who represented um, Saxon at the time. This is real. I don't need to, you know, make up no, no, no BS. So I, after looking back at it, I think the 20,000 pounds was to kind of tell me, you know, we don't want to do it, but me entertaining that, not knowing what 20,000 pounds was at the time, right? Call me stupid. Um, the person just kept going with another demand. And the next demand was, yo, need my sound system. And that was it. So um, um, I got some, some advice from one of my English virgins. And he was telling me like right after Saxon, it would be Coxon, you know? So we reached out to um, Lordy Coxon and um, we was able to get them to come over. And that was the first world class, the foundation class. Right there. Big right there. And again, I like how you go the backstories so we understand what you're dealing with before you even presented these packages. Because again, we've seen the downbeat, the Jaro Coxon on it. And a lot of times you don't know what you had to shuffle to get that lineup in the first place. Right. You know what I mean? All right. So then now, World Clash Cool, you guys did it with success. Everybody across the globe is hearing about this now. So then now, between 98 and 99, how do you encounter? Mighty Crown, because by 99 World Clash, that's where Mighty Crown now appeared on the scene. Um, so we were keeping all of these clashes, right? And we decided that, um, and again, at the time, it still wasn't a business for me and Irish. We just was groupies or fans doing sound clashes, right? And we, I guess we loved the fact that people were patting us on our back and saying, yo, good clash last night. You know what I mean? So it was one of those things that, you know, you, you do as a kid. You, you, you're you finally doing something that people can appreciate, right? And you're making a name. So um, in me trying to find the next thing to do, Red Face, Cassette Face, um, a Cassette Regin in, in, in Brooklyn that I, I ended up becoming good friends with um, at the time, told me about a Japanese sound system that plays dubs and chat patwa. And I'm like, all right, cool. 
we need that because I'm looking for a next next show. You know, I mean, I'm looking for something to sell my next show. For me, it was always about selling the show. You know what I mean? It wasn't about keeping a clash just to keep it, but I wanted to always have the people that could sell the show, you know? So now I'm looking for some show sellers because I use everybody that I could possibly use in one-on-one -on -one clashes. And he tells me about these Japanese people. And I'm like, okay, right away, I think I can market that. So I, he brings me to this, this um, brethren who was controlling the Japanese sound system. Right? Um, the guy's name was um, GT General, yes. So he brought me to GT General. And um, I spoke to GT General about the sound system that I, you know, yo, I need to get the sound. Now, the sound system that I thought I was going to get was Judgment because that was the sound that Redface was talking about, right? Um, but when I got to GT, he let me know that there was some flying issue, some issue with Judgment, but he has another sound that's just as good or even better, and they speak Patra good, right? And my response was like, yo, let's do it. You know what I mean? I just pretty much came for the Japanese sound system. Um, so we planned a couple of dances with Mighty Crown and they fared off really, really well. Some of the clashes they even won, you know what I mean? Um, but really good. Saw how people were taking to them and we saw how, how, um, the energy was and they were cool to work with. You know, the harder person to work with was general, to be honest with you, but Crown was kind of cool. Um, so in 1999, when we were putting World Clash together, Crown wasn't on my radar at all. And this is like true story. These are things that people don't know. Um, I put Mataran and Trooper together because earlier in the year, we kept Irish and Chin's first year anniversary, and those two kicked off Wicked and Mataran got the best of Chupa using 45. So it was a really big yes. Yes, that one right there. The good, the bad, and I think it's the merciless or something like mm -hmm. that. And um, Adonai was on that. Adonai was on that, right? So Mataran really got the best of Chupa, right? So there was a beef going on between the two of those guys. So I wanted to recreate that on stage. So I begged Mataran, like begged Mataran to... um do a clash for us. Because remember, Mataran just left Addis uh, recently and he was his juggling thing took off and he didn't really need the clash and thing. So, you know, you had to listen to Mataran tell you how great he is and why he doesn't need your, your business and blah, 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 blah. But eventually, um, I got him to take it, right? And then also Base Odyssey. So it was um, Base Odyssey, Kilimanjaro, Defending Champions, and Tony Mataran. My, um, my ambition was to capitalize on the beef with Mataran and Chuba, and then through Squinji in the midst of that. You know what I mean? Um, remember, we're just coming off of a three sound system format, so I'm going back into another three sound system format. Seatbelt mm -hmm. uh, says to me, yo, put the Japanese in the clash. And I'm like, no, why would they? I don't think they, he's like, Bredrin, based on the dub, then whatever Monday I play it, let's put them in the clash. What do we have to lose? Mm -hmm. So, um, Long story short, we dropped Mighty Crown in the Clash. Uh, the flyer for 1999 World Clash 
hit the streets. And I was, I didn't know what I did. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that the response was going to be so heavy and so wicked. It caught me by surprise. Everything um, with World Clash 99 caught me off guard. So it's not only Mighty Crown winning that caught me off guard. Um, Base Odyssey not getting their visas in time caught me off guard. Um, the, you know, um, I had some technical issues caught me off guard. Um, uh, people lining up from like eight o'clock in the afternoon or early, early night caught me off guard. I just wasn't prepared for that level of success at that time. Physically, mentally, we weren't prepared for it, but we pulled through, you know what I mean? It worked out. We pulled through and then Mighty Crown became the world champions. And at this time, so then you weren't managing them or anything at this time. They were just another sound that you would work with. Yeah, I wasn't managing Crown at all. I, I was I was still in college. I was still I was still in Howard and um I was driving back and forth to take care of, you know, world class stuff and whatever. So um uh they went back to Japan and tons of calls started to go to them. And in those tons of calls that started to go to them, one day I got a call from them and, you know, it was Sammy and he was explaining that, you know, he doesn't understand why so much people are trying to book dates with him overnight. Remember, this is new to all of us involved, you know, this, this level of success, right? So Sammy didn't realize that he's the world champion. It, to him, it was just that he wanted to dance, you know, in the beginning, but all of this flooding of people calling now to book Mighty Crown and this and that was a little, a lot for him. You know what I mean? Um, I gave them some advice, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't take them on until a little bit later on. We started working together. Right there. Side note, what were you taking in college at that time there? What were you majoring in? Civil engineering. I thought, to tell you the God's honest truth, I thought you would have said marketing and promotion because that seems like a natural fit for what you do. Uh, we don't got to go to school for that, man. That's <laughs> not, yeah, yeah, yeah. not promotion. Marketing as in there's still I science mean, of marketing. Yeah, I mean, marketing, I'm, I'm just being cheeky when I'm saying there's no need to go to school for that. Like survival on the streets just teaches, you know, teaches us how to, how to appeal to the people that, are, you know, that surround us. You know, our socialization... Um, is a good, good teacher of marketing. If I wanted to get the certification, then I would under, you know, I get where you're coming from, but I was a numbers person, you know what I mean? And, and, and civil engineering has a lot to do with math and calculus and calculus physics and stuff like that. So I was always intrigued by that type of stuff. Good. Got you there. Okay. 99 world class, you linked with Microcrawl and stuff. So when did it actually become official where they said, you know what, we need management. And I think you're the best one. Or even how did that situation play out? So it played out in a way where um, the story was told as a lie. And um, I just never had the energy to, to, to fix it. Um, I think I might've talked about it one time. Uh, so GT general, who was their manager, right? Um, he was giving problems and I think he was trying to protect his territory because he realized that there was an interest from us in crown because crown was doing so good. Mind you that our interest wasn't really only business, but our interest was we clash fans, you know what I mean? And these guys are playing dubs that we don't even have, you know what I mean? So 
we became, you know, you know, like fans of what they were doing because we're song men at the same time. So whenever I drop certain dub and it's like, oh damn, I never even voiced this for agony. You know, Irish never even voiced this for Supertone, but these guys are playing these dubs, you know? So we, we started to get some type of uh, camaraderie amongst all of us, you know what I mean? And I think that the manager saw that threatening to his, to his space. Mm -hmm. um, so he started to give us a lot of issues. It was a lot of unnecessary issues there. One night I went to Brooklyn to cut dubs for agony. Right. I don't know why I was cutting dubs, but I was cutting dubs. And I went to Don Juan. And when I walked into Don Juan's dub studio, Sammy T was sitting over by the window. So Sammy was saying to me, I haven't heard from you in a long time, Wagwan, but you know, he was talking his Japanese patois, you know? Um, Wagwan. And I was like, man, you know, shaking my head. And then he says to me, General, don't it? You know what I mean? So he opened the conversation. So he said, General, don't it? And I'm like, yeah, General is giving me a hard time. And plus, I can't, I can't afford to continue to fly you guys from Japan. So he says to me, what are you talking about? And then I said to him, yeah, we got to pay for you to go to, from Japan. And then he says to me, no, we buy our own tickets to come from Japan. So in that conversation, we both realized that we were being swindled. So his management was giving me invoices for flights that were never actually, you know, never actually bought by him, right? And we were paying that. So one thing with the average Japanese person is like, dishonesty can work. Japanese are like honest people mm -hmm. for the most part. You know what I mean? We know enough of them mix up with we know and they understand. But for the most part, that loyalty and that honesty was is always there with them. Um, so that became the 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 um that became the beginning of a huge fallout because in so many words, it's stealing, right? So Sammy was upset about it. He told his brother Simon about it, and it became a big thing. So when we booked 99 World Clash. We booked 99 World Clash from Sammy and Simon and we didn't go through General. If you, you, you get what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. it, you know, there was a vibe there. Drew wanted them on it. They wanted to be on it. And General was the only, you know, person that was against us working with them. So it was kind of like, yo, let's just do it. We did it. They won. Now, you can understand where the animosity is going to drop in now because they won. They're the hottest um, sound systems at the time, you know, for winning. Everybody wants a booking from them. And you, General, who put in all of this groundwork with them, you know, prior to this whole victory, you may not be able to capitalize on that because you were dishonest. And the man have you off as being dishonest. So what he did is paint the narrative that Chin, 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 Chin. You know what I mean? Chin got in and Chin is greedy and, you know, Chin wants to take over the song because they win and they want to exploit them and all of that stuff. That That's the narrative that everybody ran with, right? And I can kind of see on the outside how that might make sense to the average person, right? So um, 
Some time went on, and maybe the ending of 99 going into 2000, um, we have that conversation that they need help, right? Um, however, because they're so loyal, they said to me, before we discuss moving forward as a team, we've got to make it right with General because he put so much into what, you know, where we are now. So they went back to General and they gave him one dance, the first dance, the only dance after them winning World Clash in New York. They gave it to him for free, right? But they told him that it can't be a clash. But they were popular enough for him to just eat that food, right? And they wanted to do that for him because of whatever, you know, they went through, which I don't know. General took the dance that he gave, they gave him, and he sold it to a promoter. And the promoter put out a flyer called Base Odyssey versus Mighty Crown. Right? So it causes this problem now because Sammy and Simon is saying, yo, we didn't give you that. That's not what it was for, blah, 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 whatever. The narrative comes out again. Shin is trying to keep Mighty Crown to himself. And, 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 and not allow Crown to clash for nobody and blah, 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 blah. The promoters start to contact me because they bought into the narrative. And I'm basically saying to the promoters, Redrins, you gotta go to the person that you got the date from. You know what I mean? But it's like success breeds a lot of you know what I mean? So instead of thinking rational and saying, well, I don't got no business with shit, right? You sold me this date, so either Mighty Crown has to come, you got to give me back my money or whatever the situation is. They played into the narrative of we got to deal with Chin. However, start a war and start a bother by the argument with Chin because Chin is blocking our dance. So long story short, that dance didn't happen. Base Addison showed up, but Mighty Crown didn't show up. Right. And um, the, the manager general was able to continue with this narrative of bad mind and this and that, which disguised what he really did and what the real issue was. And I never I never came out and spoke about it because. I don't know, there was just no, I never came out and spoke about it because Simon and Sammy asked me to leave it alone and don't say nothing. That's exactly what happened. From there, it's again, it's a lot of stuff happened behind the scene. There's one more World Clash moment I want to go through before we go down some other stuff. 2000 now. This is where, this is where you definitely pumped up the numbers of sounds, and this is the first time publicly we're seeing that you're having trouble with a song, Ricky Trooper, and Jaro at that time. There, what had happened? So again, I'm in college, right? And I've got a decent relationship with Trooper because Trooper was coming to play Jaro and we made friends, right? Because remember, again, back in those days, we weren't really business oriented, right? We were more some youth where I keep some good dads. And Trooper would be what Babyface was to me as an, as an idol would have been what Trooper was to Irish, right? Then money did rip the girl from where Trooper walked by. 
And so we all became somewhat of associates, right? Um, and when Trooper left Jaro, either I contacted Trooper or Trooper contacted me that he wanted to be in world class, right? So what happened was, watch, um, Mighty Crown, Trooper wants 98. Mighty Crown beat him in, um, in 99, right? And he, he still didn't want to accept that. If didn't want the next, rightfully so, this is what warriors do, right? He wanted the next punch at Mighty Crown. So I don't remember who made the call, but the conversation was had of Trooper being in world class, right? Cool. Um, I also let him know that Jar was in world class. She didn't care. This is real. This is not me making up anything, right? And no disrespect to Trooper. This is just what happened. Um, so the flyers hit the road. And when the flyers hit the streets, it was bananas for a bunch of things. World champion Mighty Crown, right? Um, Base Odyssey, who didn't make it to 99. Um, um, Jaro and Trooper, right? Um, you know, so it was great energy. And there was a, a sound on it called Look a Rock, right? Black song from New Jersey. Black Black song. New Jersey was loaded and they ambushed Mighty Crown in a dance one time. And I had to call, I had to pull the plug to walk out. I spoke about that on, on, on social media already, right? And so it was a lot of, a lot of, a lot of a lot. Remember at the beginning of the conversation, I was saying to you, in order for me to get more numbers than the average, I had to start pulling everybody's celebrity, you know what I mean? So, you know, putting more people in an event was for each of them to add their celebrity ingredients to make the crowd bigger, right? Um, I got a call one day from a brethren who was, I guess, talking loud. One would want to say, you know, biting me up on the phone, telling me that I had no right to put his sound system on a flyer. And they never agreed to it. And I'm like, well, who's your sound? And he says, um, Sound Trooper. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if this was Sound Trooper's partner or whoever it was at the time, but there was a, you know, them start tumble suing and this and it was just a whole big chaotic thing i was trying to get trooper to basically admit that the conversation happened and um i had no luck with that so we had to just pull trooper off of it and at the same time seat Dog again he wanted to work with popo he's been one to work with popo so he's like yo all right cool let's just call popo and then that's how Popo got into, into um, the, the, the event. Um, that was 2000, Popo from Germany represented instead of Trooper. Yeah, and that's the one that Freddie won. Freddie, that was, I think, Freddie's first time on the stage by himself as Jaro, and he took home the trophy that time. That one was crazy. That was one of my, my most enjoyable ones. There. All right. A name we had brought up earlier, Stone Love. You said you linked with Disco Birch. Rockabess and all that. But the first time I've actually, I remember you actually promoting anything with Stone Love was actually your third year anniversary. That was the one with Stone Love, Radigan, and Mighty Crown. You yeah. remember that dance at Q Club? Yeah, Q Club. Yeah. How come it took you so long 
to actually start linking with Stone Love, and you had to link with Stone Love from Disco Birch and Rakabessa time. Um, Stone Love were, you know, and again, this is this truth conversation, right? Stone Love was gatekeepers at that time, right? Um, Weepo was gatekeepers at that time. Um, and his establishment picked who they wanted to do business with and who they didn't want to do business with. Right. And I think I was one of those, I don't want to do business with um, people. I was on that list. Right. Um, for whatever reason, because most people thought that my, myself and Irish and Weepo and we had this big falling out thing. It was never the case. We never had any words, nothing of that nature. I think what it was, was Stone Love trying to protect their empire and, and Weepo making a business decision that, listen, these guys are doing what we don't want to be a part of. Let them stay over there and let us stay over there. And he has a right to do that, right? Um, so on his, from his perspective, when he looks across the street at us, we are a gang of sound systems that he doesn't play with. We're Jaro, we're, <laughs> we're Black Cat, we're Bass Odyssey. So this is like all of my people that me and them are good over there, over there why would I want to be affiliated with them? So I think I became guilty by association. Mm. You know what I mean? I was the person that was, you know, creating a stage for the sound systems that him and them had a thing going on, you know? Um, so it really, really took me a long time to get a date from them. I think in my career, that whole beef been off and on with us and Stone Up, off and on, off and on. Um, you know, where I, and it's funny because I even heard, um, you know, and, and this is one of the reasons why it took me so long to talk to you because, like, people tell a lot of lies on your platform, man. A, a lot of lies. I, 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 I was listening to an interview one time that you had with Slaughter, mm -hmm. right? Where, 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 where Slaughter was saying that I robbed him or set up a dance and some, some, something of that sort. And I'm sitting there and I'm like, you know, well, Muscle is a clash historian. Mm -hmm. He's supposed to be able to challenge some of this conversation. And I'm not saying take up a chin because, you know, you don't have to take up for me. But I, I thought, like, put it this way. If anybody sits in front of me and is talking something that's way out of it, I got to be like, bro, what, you sure? Well, that's not how I saw it. You know what I mean? But you see, okay, remember with that same situation there, I, I even called into the radio and one thing you had asked me, you said, yo, why didn't you defend me? That's what you asked me. I said, it wasn't about defense. You weren't even a part of the question in the first place. You just happened to slip in. And what he had said was that you were hosting the dance. I think this was a DJ Roy's dance in Amazur. DJ Roy and Garfield, their dance in Amazur. And he said you were hosting and it's like you robbed him a point because Radigan played back a song. That to me, that didn't seem like anything ridiculous. Oh, okay, cool. That's what you think. Okay, uh, move on. I think he spoke, there was something in depth. I don't remember as well, because he said that he was speaking something about him and Mighty Crown too. You know, there was two. There was that the first one was Radigan, and the second one was the Raw Deal dance. Raw Deal, Base Odyssey, Mighty Crown, yeah. and Stone Love. Well, he, he lost and he lost fair and square. You know what I mean? Um let me tell you something, man. It sounds good to say Chin did because it's it's the easiest thing to say and it's it's so acceptable in, in the climate of our our thing, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that 
Um, as much as people think, I can't set up a dance, right? The dances are based on voters. And if I cannot sway people to vote in the way that I need them to vote to set up a dance, then it's just not possible. You know what I mean? Um, you know, I think that we need to just admit sometime that we lost and keep it a day. Listen, if Stone Love loses 10 dances, there's still going to be Stone Love. Weepo is still going to be Weepo. You know what I mean? So there's no reason to, to for, that, for, for that type of energy. I look at it muscle as when you do things like that, what you do is tear down somebody else's brand and credibility. And then it forces me to defend my brand and my credibility. And that's where the argument comes in. When some things we don't even need to say because we deep down in our heart and our soul, it's not true. You know it's not true. There is no reason for me to rob Billy Slaughter of a mighty crown victory or of a Radigan victory. How does that benefit me? After losing that competition, Radigan is still going to sell tomorrow. Crown is still going to sell tomorrow. You understand where I'm, where, where I'm coming from? Make it make sense. When you're in the clash arena with somebody like a Radigan, a mighty crown, okay, a loss is a loss. Okay, we'll move on. When you introduce Stone Love into a clash arena, a loss to them, that's a way bigger deal than if Radigan lost or if Mighty Crown lost. You understand? Because this isn't something that they do all the time. So once they do it and they feel there's a blemish on the record, they're going to take it a lot more serious than a bona fide class sound would. I hear what you're saying, but be truthful with it. If you're not on your A game, you're just not on your A game. That's just what it is. But And, and, it, and, if, and, if, and if you're going to attack someone's credibility, then detail, be very detailed, factually detailed, you know, what happened, why you feel that it's okay for you to attack this man's credibility. Make it make sense. So I'm not saying to you, don't talk about it. I'm basically saying that when you attack someone's character that magnitude to make yourself feel better about losing a competition, state, state it factually. So at least me or whoever it is that you're accusing can come back and rebuttal what you're saying. Don't make it vague. This is the clash Salman world that we're in. But okay, got that point there. There was now we're gonna talk about something else here. This is the year where Bounty was hosting World Clash, and Mighty Crown thought they got robbed, and they figured. Bounty gave it to Base Odyssey. Where did that leave you as a promoter for that time when Mighty Crown was on that rampage against Killer for a while? I got to sign with my team. I got to sign with my team. That's what we do, right? Um, and I, I believe that Killer did say something wrong, but I don't think that Killer meant to say what he... Basically, Killer was saying, in my opinion, he said something like, oh, and met the Japanese are going so wicked, right? In some person's opinion, Killer was talking to the audience to say, yo, you guys realize that y'all allow the Japanese to win this clash? Stop voting for them. That's how some people translate it. But how I saw what Killer was saying was, you guys are yard sound systems. This is what you guys do every day. 
How do make the Japanese a go on so good, man? Come on, do your thing. You know what I mean? I looked at it as him saying, and I think that's what he was trying to basically say. He's looking at his sounds like, bro, really? I this will not come what I come do? You know what I mean? Um, so it was translated in two different ways, right? I shared my translation with Sammy T and Simon, um, but I couldn't have forced them to accept my translation, right? Um, I think more of the Mighty Crown fans bought into it. It became a big thing. And then for years after, we weren't able to have a relationship with Killer, which is something that I regretted as just a promoter, right? But at the same time, I have to side with my team, right? So, yeah, um, I believe Killer had a different analogy. Uh, you know, and they, I feel that some people interpret the thing the wrong way, 100%. But at the same time, Killer now ease up, Crone now ease up, I got to stay in my corner. And, 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 and that's exactly what I did, you know? Got you because this is why why I even said that is you see how something so simple killer said swayed the audience. So sometime when somebody said, Hey, Chin Rob this, it might have been something you said that swayed the audience, or in their mind, they might interpret it that way. You understand? So it's not always everything a rob uh he set it up or what's isn't always black and white, you know. Sometimes it's what you say, you might not have the crowd might not interpret that way. But what the MC says on that microphone, the host definitely could sway the crowd this way or that way. And I get that. But at the same time, one would have to tell me what I said to sway the crowd. Mm -hmm. And they would have to tell me how, how do they think that was defined? You know what I mean? Just like how I just broke down the situation with Killer, right? Um, when this situation comes up, came up, like you realize that I'm speaking to you and I'm not attacking Bounty Killer's character. I'm basically reasoning it out with you what possibly took place, right? Um, I'm more, I'm, I'm, I'm against the character attacking. I think there's a lot of that that goes on in this industry, and a lot of it goes on from people who don't have any, 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 any substance to attack characters. You know what I mean? And, and um, some of you may think I'm wrong for it. Some of you may think, I don't know, whatever. But in, in my world, in the world that I live in, you know, I argue all day with Trooper, with Mataran, with Lings, with whoever, because they put in. You know what I mean? I feel like they're at the table and we're arguing at the table because we're all strong contributors of there being a table, right? Um, and we're always explaining to each other in our own ways why we feel a way about the next person or what Chin did or what this person did. I think a lot of what happens in my case is a lot of just, it's a lot of character and um, it's a lot of character attacking. And, and, and most of the people who do the character attacking, they don't even, they never even met Chin. They don't even know Chin. They just go up on the internet and say, Chin is, whatever chin is, and that's what it is. You know what I mean? When was your first time in Canada? I don't remember my first time in Canada, though. 
I don't remember my first time in Canada. I'm not sure if I came. I must have came there with Crown, though. I must have. Oh, yeah. My first times in Canada, we would come to the cool house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We, we, I came with Crown. I came with Crown. That was the first time. And was that through Neil, Substance Group? Um, it wasn't through Neil. I met Neil later on. So various promoters would book us, and then we would go to Cool House to play, if, I, if my memory um, is correct. And then, you know, later on, I met I, I think Ron introduced me to Neil, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. Going to get there, Canada. So then first time you just came up with Crown, you guys are just hanging out, you're doing management and all that. This is, you didn't actually keep any events, no intention on doing events or anything at first when you got here. 100%. All right. Then I think one of the earlier times also was you hosting, I think, Fully Loaded? Fully Loaded would be Ron's event, right? Yeah, I think that might have been. I hosted it for him a couple of times, yeah. That's the first time that you were here. And you seen the craziness. That was a dance where Tasha Rose is almost won that dance, but she played back a song, and that's what got her eliminated. Yeah, I remember I remember that dance. Newbie, young newbie was in that dance. I remember that dance. I remember it was in a in a in a long, in a long banquet hall. Yeah, I remember it 100 percent Yeah. What was your what was your thought when you came here and you seen the clash vibe happening like that in Toronto? I thought Tasha Roses was the baddest thing. I thought Tasha Roses was the baddest thing. Like if you if you guys would listen back to some of the things that I've um I've said as far as females in, in Sound Clash, um when I seen all of those Canadian sound systems have to gang up on her for her to be eliminated, I was like, nah, this is this is this is this is something different. I've never seen a female stand up around a sound system like that. She didn't have dubs, of course, like not like the rest of them, but she had to talk. Um and I've been in Canada prior to that, and I've seen her juggle at one and two parties, right? But that clash element, I just, I just thought that she was the baddest thing. And um, moving forward from that, my, my respect level for female selectors changed as far as those who wanted to clash. Because on this side, the girls weren't as aggressive, you know? Tasha was the person that made me start saying that, yo, if you want to be respected as a... Uh, a, a selector, be respected as a selector. Don't try to come in and try to be respected as a female selector. We selectors. So the same measuring stick that the man them getting measured with, you got to be able to be measured with that too. And Tasha let me know that that was possible. So I've always advocated for um for Tasha Roses. You know what I mean? Things things got things got sour with me and Tasha because I heard a voice note of her speaking, you know, not so kindly about me. And I'm gonna get there. I thought, Don't worry. Okay, we won't get there. So that's that's really but as far as her talent as a person, mm-hmm. always respect her. She's wicked. She's one of those that I wish that there was somebody that picked her up and gave her the money to wipe the dubs and managed her and so forth, because she could have went far. And at one time, truth be told, she was the only selector leaving Canada to represent in other parts of the world. You know what I mean? And you guys weren't giving her credit for that. So I really rated her. As I said, that one voice note, though, the contents of that voice note was like, oh, Tasha don't rate me like how I rate her. And I left it alone. We'll get to that just now. Ron Nelson, now, how did you connect with Ron Nelson and started doing business with Ron? Honestly, I don't know, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't remember, and I'm being honest with you. I don't remember. I don't know. Maybe, no. 
No, because Jill used to work for Ron. Um, I'm not, I don't know how Ron and I, I don't remember how our relationship started. It could have been started through Jill. I'm not sure. But I know that at one point we had a really good relationship, a good understanding. What was your thinking or your, what do you think about Ron Nelson when you first met him? Especially this is the one he's putting on the clashes and all this stuff here up north. I mean, I thought Ron was good in the beginning. It was, it was cool. Um, you know, he, I'm a clash man. He's keeping clash alive in Canada. Um, there would be no reason for us to, to, to have any, you know what I mean? Have any issue. Where did your whole relationship with Ron go left? Um, if I'm to be truthful, my relationship with Ron went left, in my opinion, when um, we came back with the second, the second version of World Class, when I came back with Jill, right? Because, and again, I, I think that people just like to talk and they don't, they don't pay attention to what's going on. So you had that time when, when Ron ambush, ambushed me when we were doing the whole clash thing, right? The tag team clash, yeah. Yeah, and um, even though I was mad as hell with that shit, it, 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 I wanted to get back at Ron too, so I wanted it to happen again and stuff. So it, I was mad, but it turned out being real fun, you know, because you can look back and laugh at yourself and all of that stuff. And, you know, Ron has always been someone that advocated for Canada. And I think that move was just him you know, score one for Canada, you know? So, you know, I got to come to terms with that and all of that stuff, and, and that was cool. I think what the problem was, which Ron probably would never admit, is that when we came back into the, into the territory, I believe that Ron felt that I should have linked with him because I was doing business with him prior to coming back into the territory, and I chose not to link with him, and I... Um, made Jill the partner. And I believe that whatever was going through his mind at the time, we never had a conversation about it. I'm basically telling you how I analyze his actions, right? Because even after all of the the madness that, you know, the controversy that happened with, with me and him clashing or, you know, his, his sneak attack, we still had events after that. I, I still showed up at events. He still hosted crown events. You know what I mean? At one time I gave him crown and Radigan. So there was still a relationship there. You know what I mean? Because if I don't, if I'm not cool with you, I'm not cool with you. You're not going to get crown. You're not going to get Radigan from me. So we had a good relationship moving forward and um, put all of that stuff behind. I think that when I came back into the territory and I didn't link Ron and he realized that I was continuing the world class brand, I think um, that's when everything got you know, you on your side, I'm on my side type situation. Why did you decide to come back in the territory knowing that Ron is generally, Ron is for argument's sake, he would be the Irish and chin of Toronto, just like how you're the Irish and chin in the States. Why wouldn't you connect back with Ron and then link with Jill instead at that time there? Um, Ron, Ron is a good guy, right? I think Ron is trying to be a bad guy. You know what I mean? I think that when I say trying to be a bad guy, I think that Ron realizes that there's so much people in, 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 in the culture that, you know, blame Chin for so much. He can get support by 
allowing our situation to be part of the blame chin thing. The fact of the matter is that Ron is a good guy and sometimes he's a good guy to his own detriment. So when we were doing the, the clashes, um, the world clashes, a lot of our obstacles were because of Ron's generosity. You know what I mean? Ron giving away, you know, bad, um, on passes, this, that, that, just trying to please everyone that started to make it not a business and more like a clubhouse, you know? Um, this is something that I brought to his attention at times. Neil, who was our private, you know, secret partner, um, Neil, Neil Forrest, I think his name was Neil. Yeah. yeah. yeah right. Um, and, you know, Neil had this thing that, yo, this is the last time I'm not doing Ron. So for those of you to back up my story, you know, you don't have to, this is a perfect one because there's a third person in there that you can always, you know, you can, you can, you know, clarify with, right. You know, check the, check the conversation with, and it just wasn't good for us anymore. As far as working with Ron as a businessman, not as a person, right. Um, I felt like Ron's, Ron's thing was to, you know, he was trying to be loved and accepted by too much people at the expense of myself and Neil. You see the thing with you. I think you're a businessman first entertainment fanatic after, and I'm only talking by 1%, 51% businessman, 41, 49% entertainment sound clash fanatic, because you could see from what you do uh, besides clash, um, concerts, stage shows, um, plays and all this, you could see clearly it's entertainment you like, but your business, that's what I think you're more about more than anything else. I'm not about nothing more. I'm not about more than, you know, there's no 50%, 20%, 15%, whatever, right? Why, why my actions are strange to you is because half of the people who are in our culture, they're not in it to make money. They're not in it to, to, to do business. So my actions to you may be strange because everybody else in the culture doesn't do what I do, right? The reason why I can be who I am is because of my passion and my love for SoundClash. Right. It's because of my passion and love for selectors and, and, and whatever it goes along with the whole culture. Right. I've just been smart enough to sit down and realize that I can take this further and I can do something that I love and I can also make money out of it. And I can also employ people who also love the same thing that I enjoy so they can send their kids to school and drive nice cars and make a career for themselves. There's nothing wrong with that. The industry uh, on a whole, not the industry, the sound man them and the promoters them, they make it look like it's a crime for money to be part of our day-to-day, -day, um, um, you know, situation. I don't want people to feel like, um, yo, I'm trying to business out. All of my decisions are made by business. And that's the narrative. My decisions are made by what I believe, based on my experience, is the best foot forward for us to get 10 more years in sound system culture. That's what my decisions are made from. And, 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 and whether you want to co-sign that or not co-sign that, again, we, we don't have to agree on everything that's said. But it's not all about money because truth of the fact is that there's a lot of events that we hold that we lose money. If you have a different intention 
or if, as I said, that when you and I discuss, you know, you ask the question, it's not that I'm only about business. It's about that most of the people around you in the sound system culture, it's not about business. So it makes it look like I'm doing something wrong. What can be wrong in feeding people? What could be wrong in helping some people cross the finish line? You can't help everybody, right? But I've leaned on those who will listen and I've given a lot of sound systems advice, whether they want to take it or not, I can't force them to, right? Um, so it's not like I found a secret or found an approach and I'm not sharing it with who needs to be shared to. A lot of people are so used to the system that we have that what, what I'm telling them to do to really become their own boss and their own, you know, create their own wealth is so strange to them because nobody else is doing it but chin. And let me tell you this, the worst thing in our industry, and I'm not speaking about the fans, I'm speaking about the, the collective, the soul Monday, is to be labeled as chin's boy. So if you're doing something that's too much in the realms of what chin is saying or you know what chin is saying should be done, you become blacklisted by the people, the very same people that you're looking acceptance from. That's the reality of the situation, bro. So I'm not looking for, um, I'm not looking for hats off. I'm merely just answering the questions, you know, so people can kind of get another narrative and you pick from what you want to pick. For sure. I understand that. You remember, we're in a culture where trying a thing, that's almost the norm. But may I try a thing? No, man, we're not trying. At this stage in the game, we're no longer trying, bro. We're doing. It's either we're going to put it together proper or we're not going to do it at all. You've been, playing, you've been playing sound system for 15, 20 years, 10 years, and you can't show something out of that, then you might want to change your approach if the goal is to show something out of that, right? We got to put a lot of thought and, and common sense and education to our culture, right? Um what is the goal, right? We cannot mimic what took place in the 90s because in the 90s, nobody was in culture, in the culture to make money. It was a bunch of street money being into dance hall for, for, for man who have money, for brad dancer, big sound half. You know what I mean? Me kill a boy last night and ba 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 ba. And selectors were taken care of because the man them with sound that they were working on had money. So selected us go to the boss and then get them 500 and get the thousand and did this. This is what the culture was. Now, the hustling has dried up globally. How do we continue to maintain that same settings if we don't have access to that same amount of finance? How does that work? How do you now use your nine to five money and think that you're going to be as dub heavy as the man that went out the street money before you. How does that work? So, so, so when we, you know, we got to put some common sense to it. So what I'm saying, Muscle, is that everything today can't be how it was yesterday. Right? Yesterday, the man that went on the sound system never do it for money. But you better be trying to make some money for today in order for your business to be sustainable. And if you're not doing it for a business, then get out of the way 
and let somebody who really has the talent that can make it into a business do what they're doing. There's no reason for you, any one of us, to spend our life doing something and only thing that we have at the end of the rainbow is memories. You can't tell your pity them say you used to go to Italy, go play a song, and then you go to France, go play a song. No, that's not what it is. So I'm saying to those people that, yo, listen, I seen Crown do it. I seen Radigan do it. I'm now seeing some of the Europeans do it. Yo, wake up. Let's do it. You know, one thing that you just pointed out was it's a Japanese, it's Radigan being Caucasian, it's a European being Caucasian. How come the black sounds outside of a stone love is not, cannot, or are, is not making it happen? What's the issue there? The socialization is totally different, right? We try to use color, but after a while, the color card just doesn't work, right? It's the socialization. Because we are socialized with the whole hustling thing and sound system culture never being a business and just a hustle, we continue to co-sign to that generation after generation. Writing that ain't part of that life, right? This is his job. Mighty Crown not part of that life. This is their job. The Europeans are not part of that life. This is their job. So what it is is that the, they're going into our culture with a different understanding of what they want to get out of our culture. You feel me? So they want to be able to be famous and have money. We want to be able to be famous. Again, why though, as black people want, why is that the mentality in the sound world? It's socialization, as I'm telling you, right? Our culture is mimicking what used to be before us, right? And we're making the same mistakes that the sound systems before us made and the sound owners made. If you link any sound clash owner right now and you speak to them, they will tell you that they regret spending so much money in sound business, right? So if you've got the leading sound people that we grew up respecting as the OGs telling you that they regret what they did, why are we going to go do it? Why, why are we going to go do it? So again, when I speak, I don't have the popular conversation. So because I don't have the popular conversation, it makes me unpopular. It makes me the person who don't want to see nobody else eat food. But the fact of the matter is I'm trying to teach y'all how to really pursue eating food. You, you understand what I'm saying? And I'm not saying... I'm not saying um, to do exactly what I'm telling you to do, but I'm saying, yo, there is gold down there. Whether you want to fly down there or sail down there or walk down there or drive down there, gold down there. That's what I'm telling you. And, and, and it's crazy that the narrative becomes something else, but it only becomes something else because we have people who they're not listening to what I'm saying. It's just the fact that Chin said it makes it wrong. So that's the position that I hold. So those who listen, they're good. Those who don't listen, they find their own way out. They're good. Pretty much that simple. You know what I mean? Great conversation, that part there. Something else I've always wondered, 
and I've never come up with an answer. How come an American song has never won World Clash on American soil? The American songs wouldn't work for me. That's bottom line. Like let's 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 be let's be truthful. Now we're having a conversation. All of that Ron and other stuff. Now we're having the conversation that needs to be had. The American um, sound systems would not work for me, Muslim. Right? They did they, they, they did not agree with the, the the format that I was introducing to the sound clash culture, which is what later on dubbed as microwave clashing. They felt that you have to play over over half hour half hour in order to be a real champion. They saw no value in my um, my trophy. They saw no value in my promotion. So it's not only early ADs that didn't work with Irish and Chin, but LP didn't do it neither. Um, 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 Earth Ruler didn't do it neither. They didn't work with me. And it's not because or only because of money, right? It was because they did not want to be affiliated with what they thought was a watered down version of the arena that they came from, bottom line. So even when you had like Poison there and you had some American sounds in the class, you know, but an American sounds just never won the title on American soil. I can't explain that. I mean, I know Poison Dart is one of the sound systems that that did, um, you know, but that is, that is something that I can't explain. I can't, I, could, I couldn't, I couldn't, I um, couldn't, make an excuse or give you a, a understanding of why they didn't win. They just didn't win. But I remember some really good moments for Poison Dart at World Clash. Mm -hmm. I remember that. You know what I mean? Um, um, I remember because in the beginning, Martin was representing the U.S. Right? And um, I remember some really good moments for Martin as well. You know, so. That's big there. Another gear. I know one time you went into, you're managing Crown, that's cool. Were you managing Mr. Vegas at one time also? Yeah, I was managing Vegas for about two years. How did that situation come up in the first place? That was that was a great experience for me, man. Um, um, we took Vegas to Japan, and he got a chance to really see how things were structured because uh, prior to that, I had opened up an office in Jamaica, right? So my whole ambition from day one, and, and I want to point this out to you because I think it's important. As a selector, in my mind, we fight in the arena, we play at these parties because we're trying to become celebrities, right? Now, that's just the part of it. It may be the hard part of it for some people, but it's really not the hard part of it, right? Or not the hardest part of it. After you make it to celebrity, the hard part is understanding where you are positioned and trying to um, um, maneuver that celebrity, right? Because what I'm saying to you is that as a soul man, what our ambition should be is to identify when we have reached a celebrity status. So that moment that we have you know, climbed to a level where people are starting to know us, we need to then think about the leverage of such celebrity. And that's what a lot of us fail to do. Right. So I, I'm saying that to say that when things started to bubble for me um, right after the, the the world clash, the game over in 2007. I opened up an office in Jamaica. Right. Um, the Jamaican leg of the Irish and Chin you know, whole thing. And during that um, time, I was able to meet Vegas 
And um, we were booking for Mighty Crowns of 40,000 patrons stadium show. And um, Vegas went over with me and, um, you know, he saw how we had business structure. You know what I mean? As someone might. Again, he's looking as a business, but he's like, yo, Nebulum Tetting, it's really structured. And um, he asked me to manage him about maybe two or three times. And the last time, um, I just, you know, took the chance and said, yo, let's do it. And we did it. And it was, it was a journey. It gave me another understanding of management that I didn't have because now I'm managing an artist, right? Um, it also gave me an opportunity to go to some places that Mighty Carl wouldn't have taken me for me to understand what's taking place over there as well as far as dance hall and radio is concerned. So the time that I spent with Vegas was really valuable. Yeah, because this was when he had put out the um, Bless song because you guys' name is actually in that song there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good thing. There. And were you managing Etana at the same time also or around then? Etana, I managed after Vegas. Um, that was a shorter time, but I was able to do some. Um, I was able to do some some good things with her too. You know, for me, um, I'm all about your absence being felt. So any project that I put my hands on, I'm gonna do my best at it. I want to hit it hard. You know what I mean? I want people to be impressed. I want to open as much doors as I can because in my absence, that's when you know your presence is really appreciated if you believe, you know, if you kind of understand what I'm saying, right? 100%. Um, so, so I gave Itana a really um, good swing. Um, I gave Vegas a really good swing as well. And, um, you know, I've, I've always been, you know, trying to keep Crown above water also. Good. Another venture you got into was the Rewind series. And one of the Rewinds was, um, was that the Crown and the Uroy at one of the Rewind series? Yeah, that was the 10th anniversary Rewind series. And again, it was just me um, highlighting a different part of sound system culture. Like, my thing is sound culture. Like, I'm a fanatic of it. I told you how my humble beginning started out. Um, so anything that I can do to push the sound system culture, I wanted to do that. So I was basically trying to capture the live artist essence of the culture. Because I know that, because after Uroy had died, the picture that everybody was using was the crowning from your dancer. I said, that right there, you're supposed to feel good because, you know, okay, now my legacy in this part here is solidified 110%. Right. Uh, right. I mean, I felt, I felt, I felt good about it. Um, I, I felt good about it that I was able to do it. I felt sad about it because he didn't have any acknowledgement of that magnitude. Um, prior to him passing, um, his family actually buried him in the in the town and the, and the crowd. So that's what he was buried in. It's nice little vibes, but it was a great feeling for me, man. Working with Daddy Uroy, working with a lot of the other veteran artists, seeing them do what they used to do years ago that inspired what we have. Um, you know, for me, it's like, no matter what, I'm gonna respect the ones that came before me. You know what I mean? And 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 again. You know, I'm not going to only talk that I respect them, but I'm going to show that I respect them. And, you know, and, and, and what if I feel like I'm in a conversation that they need to be mentioned, it don't matter what my status is with them. As far as friends or not friends, I'm going to mention them, you know, um, you know, as far as like a baby face. I don't get along with baby face at all. You know what I mean? But that has nothing to do with what our conversation is. You know what I mean? 
and, and how my beginnings became my beginnings. Um, you know, there's other selectors that I go back and forth with Chuko. You know what I mean? We're always at each other's throats, but his contribution is his contribution. You know what I mean? And then Monday set it for us to come in and do what we did. So I, I really always want to just, you know, acknowledge that, you know, and, 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 and keep that, that energy going. And I think that a lot of my success has always been because I respect what came before me. Got you a hundred percent. And that makes sense. You got to know you, you stepped into a room, this room, you didn't build this room alone, but you helped to build it. You got to respect whoever built this room or this house before you too, while putting your bricks on top of this house here. hundred percent, because if they didn't put the bricks down, then there would be no, there would be nothing, that, you know, nothing there. I would have to start from scratch and maybe I don't have the knowledge or the talent to do what they did. You know what I mean? So I, I definitely respect them um, as, you know, you can't get along with everybody. But for me, I I try my best to reach out to who I who's receptive, and you know, you know, I will forever fight the whole anti-Irish and Chin um, um, establishments, right? So those who buy into that narrative, and I get that energy from them, I leave it. I don't I don't even challenge it. But those who are receptive, you know, I I, I do what I can do. Got you. Where is talking about, we've brought up his name a million times. Why do we never see Irish on the forefront? It's always Chin. That's why Chin is always getting the bullet. Chin's name is always being called up. Where is Irish? Irish hates the culture. I mean, he doesn't hate the culture. He hates the people in the culture. Um, he's not... The, 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 what we've been through beat him up. You know what I mean? Um, and we've been through a lot. What we've been through beat him up. Um, he sees the the backbiting, the bad mind, the false accusations, um, the, the straight up ungratefulness, um, and he just didn't want no more part of it, you know. And at that time, I had an option to, you know, say I'm not gonna go any further and leave it alone, or if I'm gonna just push push through. So he's around. He doesn't function the company as he used to but it's because he just doesn't want to be around the people, you know? And, and again, we have a history with everybody and we have separate history with everybody as well, you know? So he just, you know, I, I, you would, I don't think that you guys would ever get him to talk, but if he wants to talk about his experiences, um, you guys will be surprised. Yeah, because he's never been that type of person. Even on your logo, he's the one sitting on the pot of gold, but you're the one in the corner smoking the weed. So clearly you're the one more out there doing whatever you're doing. You understand? I never looked at it like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that that's, you know what I mean? So even a couple more things I want to get to before we start to wind down a bit here now. Another venture I know you guys got into was plays. What made you start to do plays? And let me tell you how, I found out about you guys doing plays. Do you remember a guy named Ryan Pentagrass? He's from, that's when you guys did Bashman Granny 2. Okay. That, same, that same year, we did Bashman Granny 2. And how I found out that you did, you were doing it is Ryan sent an email with the specs for the set. You were on it. I was on it. And a couple more people. That's how I knew. Okay, you guys are venturing into plays also. What made you guys decide to go into plays? Uh, a friend of mine's, actually a friend of Irish's brother's, right? Who's now a good friend of mine's. Um, he was in charge of the whole Bashman Granny establishment in Jamaica, mm -hmm. right? 
I, again, for some reason, I'm just oblivious of something. So I had no clue of Shibata, nothing like that. The only thing that I knew was um, at work class Jamaica, everybody was getting forwards off of this Shibata chat, right? Everybody was getting these huge forwards. People see, you know, was making dubs about it. It was hilarious, right? So um, in it being, you know, in that happening, I came home to America and he called me based on friendship now. And he's like, yo, he called Irish. And Irish called me. And then we got on a three-way. And he's like, yo, I'm going to give you guys the place, the place they must set off in a Jamaica. And then he start with, you know, through stats. Like, you know, over here, so 10,000 people, 8,000 people, 6,000 people, blah, 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 blah. So Irish came to me with it. And I'm like, hell no. Not doing it. No, I'm not, I'm not doing it. You know, I'm not doing it. And at that time, I was victim of what I just accused you of, like being so much allowing the culture to kind of tell me what's good and what's bad and so forth and so forth. But I wasn't applying any common sense to it, muscle. And then eventually I, um, I said to myself, I was in Jamaica. In fact, I was having the conversation with Trooper. Mm-hmm. Right? And Trooper was telling me, he'll never admit this, but he was telling me that he had to bring his girl or you know, some relative, somebody to the to the bashment gratitude and Raman people out there fight for getting and all kind of crazy shit, right? Mm-hmm. And I came home from Jamaica and I got a phone call and I said to myself, like, yo, so Everybody's saying that the bashment grinding is that thing there, right? But if that's the case, how comes it's getting 10,000 and 8,000 and 6,000 people and moving towards Jamaica? That means that everybody that Jamaica got that thing there. So I'm like, you know what? This doesn't make sense. It didn't make sense to me anymore, right? I call the brethren and I say, yo, you know something under the play? And he said to me, there's only one left. In the beginning, I was going to get Boston, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey. I was going to get everything. Right? But I allowed the culture to kind of whatever, right? I got the plane. I did it in Amazura. And it sold out. And it sold out with women. And it was all of the, you know, the, 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 the nice looking girls, the hot girls, the dance hall girl, and everybody was coming lined up. And I was like, yo, I can live with this. This is because, <laughs> you know, throughout my whole um, professional career, I've never been able to attract these people. Mm-hmm. They don't come to clashes in these droves, you know? So I'm looking outside and I'm like, wow, more women are coming. Looking out, all ages too, right? Um. So I went to Jamaica afterwards and I cut a deal with them. And I just say, yo, listen, I'm going to lock the, the bashment granny. Um, and matter of fact, any place that you guys produce, I want them. Here's the money. Here's the contract. Let's do it. You know, um, of course, the dance hall people started to call me all kind of names. Right. Um, but the truth be told is a lot of them came to my shows. Right. So I would be at the door 
and somebody would be walking through with their girl, their mother, whoever, and they start doing it, explaining, saying that, watch you are, sister. And it was like, no, 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 you're good, you're good, man. Just go enjoy yourself, right? Um, and it was cool. And then we brought a dance hall aspect to it that it never had. So we had a DJ playing in the intermission. Mm -hmm. um, we started hanging like huge posters all over New York and dealing with it like where I keep my sound clash. Um, and it, it it blew up for us. And um, you know, my 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 I did it moment was being able to stage in the same day Shabada and Oliver on the same stage. That was my my I did it moment, you know. Um, and I'm gonna be really honest with you. I made way more money from the from the from the from the place than I made from a lot of my events. Let me stop you right there because if you weren't gonna say that, I was gonna tell you that. That venture right there, we've done it only one time, but we did five shows for the weekend. That was the only venture we did one time where we made money right away. You yeah. didn't have to worry about this or that. Those plays, you made money immediately. And and then, you know, I, it was cool because, as you said, business, right? Here goes the business part that you were talking about. I saw them doing this two-for-one thing in Jamaica. So I brought the two-for-one thing here. And then I, I kind of changed it by not only doing two-for-one, but doing two two-for-ones in one day. You know what I mean? So basically it would be four plays in a day, you know, and then I created one big budget <laughs> for all four plays. And then I would say to myself, okay, today, in order for me to break even, I need 1,200 people for everything, right? And then I would say to myself, well, I know that I'm going to get 2,500 or close to 3,000 people, so all of that would be profit. And we, we, we killed it with the plays um, and the plays got burnt out and, and then we had to just move on. But listen, I don't regret doing that. That was a great business move for me. Um, and I gave a lot of people jobs, you know. As I said, it's sometimes, are you doing it for, because it's cool and what other people are saying? Or are we doing this because it's part of the culture and there's money to be made and we're business people? You understand? Just like when we booked that show, I had a chaos. Everybody used to come up. Do you have Bashman Granny 2? Do you have Bashman Granny 2? I've never even watched number one. And I said, one day I looked at the back of the, the DVD. I said, you know what? I'm going to call these people. Call them. And it worked out and we made money right away without caring about what other people were saying or thinking. I didn't know what it was. I made, I made some serious money off of it. Mm -hmm. But what I did was I gave, I added fuel. You know what I mean? I gave them fuel. I gave them fuel to call me all type of names and say I was this and say I was that. But let me say this in closing with this, this question. Because um, remember, Trooper put out the put it on YouTube, right? Um, and that was stemming off of me keeping the place. And Trooper doing that, believe it or not, helped me so much. It helped me beyond what you guys can can understand because that load that Chopra dropped on my shoulder, most people cannot come back from that, right? The B-man is the worst thing that you can call most people in our culture, right? And to see that Chopra did something and, you know, everywhere I was going, people were talking to me about it and they got so much publicity. 
and I was able to outlive that, it gave me a confidence that I didn't have about my position in the industry. It allowed me to realize that as much as, you know, for every one person that hates me or dislikes me, there's a hundred people that champion what I'm doing because I, I lived that. That was a heavy blow from, from, a, from a very respected individual in, in the core space, you know? And me being able to still muscle up and still be able to keep dance and the dance that runs the same way, I realized that, yo, basically, I'm rich. You know what I mean? I, I'm there now, and I, I had that confidence to move forward. Good. From your opinion, your mind... Who do you think is the greatest dinosaur of them all? This argument comes up all the time. This podcast is brought to you by www.twolinedmusichunt.com.